So like I said, I've been thinking about the paleo diet. And here's what uh, the Mayo Clinic says. A paleo diet is a dietary plan based on foods similar to what might have been eaten during the Paleolithic era, which dates approximately 2.5 million to 10,000 years ago. A paleo diet typically includes lean meats, fish, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. I'm, it's amazing how they knew this. Foods that the past could be obtained by hunting and gathering. A paleo diet limits foods that became common when farming emerged about 10,000 years ago. So what they're saying is, you know, all of the farming now, it's been more and more processed. You know, let's just go back to the way it was. They say the aim of the paleo diet is to return to a way of eating that's more like what early humans ate. Here's a typical day's menu. Tell me if this doesn't sound good. Breakfast, broiled salmon and cantaloupe. <laughs> Lunch, broiled lean pork loin and salad with romaine, carrot, cucumber, tomatoes, walnuts, and lemon juice dressing. Now that's living. Dinner, lean beef sirloin, tip roast, steamed broccoli, salad, and strawberries for dessert. And snacks, here's what you can snack on in the paleo diet. An orange, carrot sticks, and celery sticks. See, the point is, get rid of what's kind of weighing you down, all of those processed foods, get rid of all those fatty foods, and go back to the way it was to kind of detoxify yourself. They do give a little at the very end. The Mayo Clinic does say, a paleo diet may help you lose weight or maintain your weight. It may also have other beneficial health effects. However, there are no long-term clinical studies. They should have long-term. This should be Cape. That's 10,000 years ago <laughs> about the benefits and potential risks of the diet. And then it writes, you might be able to achieve the same health benefits by getting enough exercise and eating a balanced, healthy diet with lots of fruits. And I don't want to exercise, so let's go to paleo. In a way, I'm bringing this up because church has gotten like the way we eat. It's, now you can find a church that will meet everything you want. You want a church with fog machines and rock music? We have those churches. See? Yeah, that's what we want. You want a church that you know, is a political force. We have churches that can, you know, join your party. Is that what church is about? Some people think it is. Some people want a church that takes care of every single need. You can take care of, you know, a just raising money for the homeless, taking care of uh, eye, ear, throat disease. You know, I mean, you want a church that has everything. It even has their own repair shop in the back. That's what churches is all about. And I think sometimes... We need to go back and say, what was the original purpose of the church? What was the original calling? Why are we doing this thing called church? In fact, the word church means a gathering. A gathering that God has called out. That's, it's the Greek word ecclesia. It just means a called out gathering. What are we gathered for? Why has God called us out? Well, to talk about it, we're going to go to see all about the, one of the very first churches on record, the Church of Thessalonia. 1 Thessalonians was written about 49-50 A.D. Some people believe it was even written before the book of Galatians. But there's some debate. Was Galatians written first or was Thessalonians? So what we're going to do is we're going to learn about a church that Paul loved because they were doing it right. Because it was, in a way, kind of like the paleo diet. They're just doing what's really we're called to do. If you can stand, let's start reading. We're going to just do the first chapter today. And I'm going to read, and if just follow along with me. 
1 Thessalonians, greeting. This is the greeting. So Paul's writing a letter. But you'll see, well, I'll give you the context in a minute. Paul, Silvanus, also known as Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. That's a greeting that Paul says, grace to you and shalom. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and our Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report coming us, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You may be seated. So we're going to take a look at that. So we have to do first things first. Paul, if you notice, he, gave, he loves this church. He absolutely loves this church. But we need to understand the context. First of all, what is Thessalonians? It's a big word. It's kind of a churchy word. I kind of, when I was a little kid, I would read Thessalonians, and I just thought it was some Latin phrase the Catholic Church made up. I don't know what it was. So what is Thessalonians? Well, the context is, if you go to the next thing, there's called the missionary journeys of Paul. Paul went on three missionary journeys to leave from Jerusalem and take the gospel around the world. This is the second missionary journey where he left Asia, which is over here to the right of the Aegean Sea, and he was in Troas. And if you go to Acts, I want you to go to the book of Acts, and I want you to go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, and in, in uh, verse 1, if you notice, what you're going to see is in Acts chapter 15, it's called the Jerusalem Council, they sent Paul out with Silas. And in Acts chapter 16, the very beginning says, Timothy joins Paul and Silas. Well, if you go to verse 9, it says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak a word in Asia. So on this side is Thygia and Galatia's over here, but they really didn't feel compelled to speak there. And if you look at verse 8, it says, uh, well, verse 7, when they came up to Myasia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and of Troas, Troas is right up there. They went to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, which is the other side of the Aegean Sea, you see Macedonia on the top, a man from Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul had this vision that we need to go to Macedonia and bring the gospel. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, 
concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So as you read Acts, they went to Philippi, and then they went to Thessalonica. Paul liked to go to big cities. Paul didn't like to go out to the rural, small kind of towns. He likes to reach as many people as possible. And Thessalonica, Thessalonica, today Thessaloniki, is a big city at the time. If you go to the next slide, this is, it was on the edge of the Thermaic Gulf. It's a beautiful place. I mean, it's really beautiful. If you go up to the Aegean Sea and up on the right, it's like a natural harbor. And it's full of beaches. And it's also a natural crossroad where people would come to Thessalonica to go up into deeper parts of Europe. Here's what the city looks like today. The city's a beautiful city. That's the bay out there where the Aegean Sea, if you keep going. Today, there's about a million people in Thessaloniki. At the time, there's about 400,000. But it also had a really, really large Jewish population. What you're going to see is there was a synagogue set up there. Back during World War II, Germany invaded. Actually, the Axis countries, Italy and Germany, invaded. And they transported, uh, some people speculate, 60,000, but 30,000 Jews from Thessaloniki and had them exterminated in the camp. So there's a big Jewish contingency in this city. I want to take you to the story before we get to Thessalonians. So before we read this book, there's a history, a history that happened. So go to Acts chapter 17 and watch what happens. And then it will give you why did Paul write this? You'll understand why. It's very clear. So you go Acts chapter 17. Verse 1, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So it begins with Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They are on their missionary journey. They go to a big city, and Paul always preached first for the, to the Jews, because he was a Jew. And the Jews are the ones that had the history of Israel and the Messiah. So that's why he'd go to the synagogue, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. It's not something different. It's the continuation of what God revealed to the Jews. So he'd go to the synagogue, and look what it says. Verse 2, and Paul went in, and as was his custom, because he'd go to the Jew first, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So he'd take the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Or like Jeremiah 23.5, that out of this branch shall come the righteous one. And he reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures, saying, this Jesus, he is the fulfillment of everything in your Scriptures. And they had at the time what's called the Septuagint. Septuagint are 70 scholars that translated the Hebrew into the Greek, and the Thessalonians read Greek. So they were very familiar with the Old Testament. So, verse 3, it says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, who I'm proclaiming to you, is the anointed, the Christ. He's the king that was predicted by Moses. So you got verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So who resonated? Well, some Jews did. Some Jews are like, I get it. But really the people who got it are the pagan, the Greeks. 
devout Greeks, meaning that they were already being, in a sense, interested in the Jewish faith. They were at the synagogue. They're like, oh, I see it. And also, this was a, what's called a free city at the time, free thinking. And so you have a lot of leading strong women there. So you could say it had a feminist flavor to it. Everybody responded to the gospel. And so what happened is it started getting the Jews upset. The Jews were jealous and taking some Wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set out in the city, and uproar and attacked the house of Jason. So what happened, they go to the synagogue, then they go to Jason's house. There's speculation, because what you're going to see, there's a lot of hints in Thessalonian. Paul really knew this people, so it's speculated. A church was started at Jason's house. Jason was a Jewish name. And that Paul probably, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were probably there from six months to a year teaching. So they left the synagogue. And they went to Jason's house, and it made the Jews mad. So mad that they got a rabble, a crowd of bad characters. That's what it says in verse 5. Some wicked men of rabble, bad characters, it says in the NIV. And they, could, they tried to get Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of there, but verse 6, they couldn't find them. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason out, and they said, hey, where are these guys? They've turned the world upside down. Jason received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. They always love to go try to get Rome involved. See, they don't like what Caesar's saying. Saying that there's another king, Jesus, and the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they'd taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. Give us your money. Promise us that you don't want to hear some money. Just get off me. And then so verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. So they left town by night. So we pick up Thessalonians. So we come to Thessalonians, and it's written because Paul ran out at night. This was truly the first, you know, the song Band on the Run. These guys was the first band on the run. They were being chased by some angry people. They went down to Corinth, and Corinth was down at the bottom, and there Paul could catch his breath, and he was praying mightily for him. He's like, I need to write the Thessalonians, and I need to write them for three reasons. Number one, to thank them. Listen to what he says. If We can now pick up in this. Listen to what he says in verse 2. We give thanks to God always. They were a huge encouragement to Paul because they believed his message. He thanked God for these people. He loved this church because this church hung in there even when they're being attacked by a group of rabble-rousing either Gentiles, Jews, I don't know. They just wanted them out of Dodge. In a way, I, it's kind of like Thessalonians would be kind of how you are to me. I thank God for you guys. I think of you often. I pray for this place. And it's like, these people were dear to Paul. So he's like, I, can't, I wish I was there. I can't be there. He also uh, is writing to them to say, hang on. And what you're going to see, he's going to talk about afflictions. Look at verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Look, you did what we told you to do. You followed our example. Received the word in much affliction, and yet you're still full of joy. So he's saying, hang in there. And then... The whole point of this is he's going to remind them. He's going to remind them to remember what they're taught. 
Like even verse 3, he remembers, and later on he's going to keep saying, remember what we taught you. So the purpose of this letter, Paul misses them. He wishes he could be there to help a young church. So he longs, but he can't be back because they're going to kill him. So he writes to encourage them. But the more than encourage, I think he wants to reassure them that God is with them. They'll be fine. Parents, you understand this. Especially when you send your kid away to college or they get newly married or they leave town to start their first job. You want to be there. When they join the army, the military, and they're going to be barracked in some forsaken place, you just want to be there with them, but you can't. And I think in your heart, your heart says, ah, do you think God can take, do a good job of taking care of them? Do you think God can do a good job of taking care of his own children? Absolutely. He can even do it better than you. And that's the point of this book. Paul wants to reassure them, I know I'm not there. I know Silas and Timothy aren't with me to be with you. But don't worry about it. I know you're going to be fine. And that's the whole point. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is Paul knows they're going to be okay. And he gives two really reasons why. It says in verse 4, verse 4, We know, brothers, two things about you. One is theological. And the first is going to be a knowledge based on theology. I call this, this is, you know, when this is to impress other pastors. This is a theological reason. Positional grounds for Thanksgiving. Positional grounds mean in the mind of God, they are positionally fine. Even though out, outwardly it doesn't look like it. Theologically, in truth, in God's truth, they're fine. And Paul gives the reasons why. Verse 4, we know, brothers, loved by God. Loved by God. God. And what's interesting in verse 1, he calls him God the Father. That he's chosen you. Oh no. <laughs> Do we have to talk about this? <laughs> this idea of election and predestination and that God chooses. What's very interesting as you're reading through this, Paul is appealing to what is already known that God did for the Jewish people. I want you to go to Deuteronomy 7. Look at Deuteronomy 7. About three commentators says the language is, it's very close to what's even written here. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. This is how God chose Israel. The Lord did not set his affection on you. And choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all people. So why did God pick the Jews? Because, man, there's a ton of them. And they were the best. Nacho Libre says, it's the best. <laughs> no, that's not why. No. No, actually, because you're the fewest of all peoples. And also because he loved you. And kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. He picked out Abraham and said, I'm telling you, I'm going to make you. You guys know this story. Numerous of stars. Because God loved Abraham. 
And God loves his people. And so in a sense, what Paul is saying is he's saying, now the church is the extension of this original promise. You are now included in God's choosing of a family of love. Gordon Fee writes this about the topic of election, specifically concerned to this verse. Israel did nothing to deserve God's redemption from slavery. In election as his people, it was God's doing altogether. Given that many of the first Gentile converts to Christ had regularly attended the Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica, it seems very likely that a goodly number of them would have heard Paul's usage here as a transfer of privilege to them now as followers of the Jewish Messiah. What's very interesting, if you look in this book, watch how he talks about Jesus. Very first, first uh, verse 1. To the church, that means the, the gathered people of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is the word kyrios, which is a Greek translation of Yahweh. So Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus is God saves. And Christ means anointed king. The anointed one. How many times has he called Jesus the Lord? Oh, look at verse 3. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh, God saves, the anointed king. Verse 7, the word of Yahweh, the Lord. So there's this implication that their faith in Christ is a continuation of the promise to Israel. So the teaching of election is used for us is based on two truths that are always true. They will always be true. And the first is this, and I thank God for this truth. None of us deserves redemption, and yet he still loves me. It's an amazing truth. In some sense, we get so scared of election, but, but in the truth is, I don't deserve anything. There is nothing in us that God should be compelled to choose us or to not choose us. He just does. You were the smallest. That's why I chose you. And the second is, um, don't go to the second yet. Take that back. Take it back. All right. So I would say, um, just as the Jews had nothing to offer for God, neither do we. This week I read, a, I'm on part of a Facebook group. It's an, I, I won't tell you what it is, but there's a girl that posted on this Facebook group who doesn't think God loves her because before she knew Christ she was raped and she heard from other Christians that because she was not a virgin, God would not accept her. I wrote back to her, wow, thanks for your honesty. Your testimony breaks my heart, especially the part as a Christian you are taught to be a, vir you're taught to be a virgin and if you're not, you're a slut. That's what she wrote. The sad part about that is the Christians who said that never read about Christ and how many of his early followers from Mary Magdalene to the woman at the well were not sexually pure at the time he loved them and offered salvation to them. Doesn't the concept of sin mean we are all broken in our own way before he chose us? And that is why we all need a Savior. Jesus, God saves I'm so sorry the version of Christianity you received was not the Christ I know. The second now is this. You can put that up there. The one who has the right to pick and choose is the father. And he has the right to pick and choose who are going to be in his family and his children. Gordon Fee continues this thought. He says, for Paul, 
The topic of election is always a referent to believers and thus reflects a reality after the fact, not before. And as here, it is always seen as an action of God's love and thus it becomes a dynamic force in the life of the believing community. In other words, what Gordon Fee says, Paul discusses election only after the church is established and have gone through the pain of persecution. It seems like every time Paul talks about it, it's because they are facing enormous, enormous hurdles to continue in faith. And saying, you know, when you peel behind reality, there's a deeper reality. God loves you and he chose you. He won't let you go. I think we must all come to grips with the fact that God has every right to choose his family. And when God chooses who's in his family, and whoever he chooses to be in his family will be drawn to him by love. And whoever is drawn to him by love, he will never lose. Even there's affliction, disease, despair. That's the point of Paul's encouragement. Jesus gives this same, go to John 10. This is an incredible verse. And some of you need this verse, John 10. He's writing this to his disciples. And Jesus is writing, or saying this to his disciples with knowledge that he's going to be handed over. And he says in John 10, 28 and 29. And you can really begin in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. My people, those who are mine, they hear my voice. And then he says this. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So tell me, will he lose you if he has fought you? Jesus is saying... Well, I would say like this. I personally did not choose my kids, but I can't imagine loving them any more than I do now. No matter what they do, they're mine. And I love them. They'll never lose my love, never. And we who are God's children will never lose his love. Election and being chosen is a crazy thing. I understand it. I understand the craziness. One seminary professor said it like this. Try to explain election and you may lose your mind. But explain it away, you may lose your soul. So naturally, the next question we must all ask, and we just naturally ask, okay, okay, how then can I know if I'm part of his family? If I'm one he wants, if I'm chosen. Is there a way? And by the way, I just give a little caveat. I don't think we can ask this for anyone but ourselves. We've got to quit looking at people and say, they're in, they're out. Paul wore jeans today, he's out not one of God's elect. This is really something we can only ask for ourselves. And my answer is simple. Based on what Thessalonians says in here, if it is so, it will show. Am I chosen? If it's so, it will show. Look what he says in verse 4. Because, for we know, brothers, loved by God that he's chosen you because, because our gospel came to you, not only in words, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And this is still based on the know. Here's how we know, not only theologically that you're chosen, but we know 
evidentially. It's seen. It's, it's visible faith. It's visible expressions. And he's going to give three visible expressions of saving faith. And these three visible expressions, I think, are expressed in verse 3. He says it like this. Remembering before God and your work of faith. That's the first way. Some, and I'm going to say that's salvation. You're saved. Second is labor of love. You could say either sanctification or there's service coming out of you. And then the third is steadfastness of hope. There is this steadiness, a security that you're okay in him. So let's look at the first way that he explains this work of faith. He says it begins with the word. If you look, and I've underlined, look how many times he uses the gospel and word. Verse 5, our gospel came in the word. Verse 5, verse 6, the word, you receive the word. In verse 8, not only has the word sounded forth. So the word, the way it begins is, is God uses the word, spoken, a spoken message to, to capture people. You want to know how, what the early church really did? They spoke the word. Specifically, Paul describes it as our gospel, our good news. Well, what is it? What is Paul's gospel? Let's see if it's ours. Because some people, believe it or not, think that he made something up. So it's his own unique gospel. I've, I've heard this before. What is his gospel? Go back to Acts 17. He tells you exactly what his gospel is. And it has three components. Three components. Acts 17 in verse 2 and 3. So it says, he's in, the, he's in, imagine, he's in the synagogue. So again, the synagogue is full of Jews who knew the scriptures. And they were given the Septuagint. So what he does, according to verse 2, he opens and reasons through the scriptures. God's original revelation given to man by God. Verse 2, he reasons through scripture. What does he reason about? Verse 3, this is his gospel. He says that he, was, he explained and proved that it was necessary for Christ to suffer, that regard to the crucifixion, Christ, it was necessary for Jesus to die, to suffer, and to rise from the dead. And then he said, this Jesus who I'm proclaimed to use the Christ, here's his gospel. Jesus needs to suffer. Why? Because you sin. You sin. What else does it say? Jesus rose to prove that he paid for that sin. Not only did he rise, but he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the ruler, the Christ, the one that's exalted. That's the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul says, and I, and I bring this up because you need to see it with your own eyes. Because we make it too complicated sometimes. We, want to, we think a gospel is everything else under the sun. The gospel, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died, suffered, for our sins, according to the Scriptures. So according to the Old Testament Scriptures. That he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and then also us. But that's the gospel. 
Jesus died, and he rose again, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you believe that? Do you, have you received that? Because that's how a person is, enters into the family of God. That's how you know if you're really chosen, if you received it. And then he says, but it's not just, but, but it, it's accompanied with something. Look at what he says back in this. It's fun to go back to this. I don't have to turn in the Bible. It's really easy. I kind of like that. See, Jared, we thought ahead. All right. And it, he says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So it's not just a message. It's a message that has transformative uh, in it. So there's a big debate. Well, what does it mean that came with power and the Holy Spirit. Well, there's three interpretations that churches in the United States have take on that verse. Number one, th some people think it's the presentation method. Remember going to my brother's church and this big guy would sit on this, he'd walk real slow, and he'd sit on a chair and he'd sit there the whole time and say, amen, amen, but man, when he got up here, oh, 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 he could speak. And then they do this thing like this. Oh, oh I feel the power. Oh, what is that? Seriously. That's a show. Look what Paul says. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 4, and 5. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5. Start in verse 3. He's talking to Corinthians how he spoke. And, and I was with you, I was with you in weakness, and in much fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's kind of comes with weakness and trembling. There's this fakeness in our church. And I'm telling you, people pay big money to watch guys show. They say like this, light me on fire and watch me burn. Anybody can do that. I had, I, I, you might have heard the story, I had a guy, when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, and he joined the football team, and he came out, and he got hit one time, and he quit the football team, but he's rich, and his dad got him this new truck that had some kind of exhaust, and he'd sit in the parking lot and go, oh, 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 and they'd say, man, that's got to be some cool guy, and it's a guy that just got tackled, and he quit the team. Anybody can show off. And a lot of these preachers are playing this stupid game. This is not a game. It's a gospel that can change your life. Think. Respond. Don't just say, that guy's great. There's a second power. Some people believe that it's miracles, signs and wonders. And to some degree, when the apostles, specifically Paul, preached, there were some amazing things that happened. Peter, when they walked by a shadow, some people jumped up. And there's in Hebrews chapter 2 saying that the apostles confirmed the message of Christ with signs, wonders. But now, I believe we are given his scriptures to prove the message that was first given by the apostles according to Ephesians. Because look at what it says here in Thessalonians. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in 
also empower in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Conviction. It cuts you. Oh, it's not just miracles, it's conviction. It changes me. It says in Acts 2.37, after Peter got preached, people were cut to the heart and they say, what must we do? What must we do? There's a lot of discussion on the work of the Holy Spirit these days. It's everywhere. It always comes in waves. It's like every generation has a new group, new wave. Of, you guys need some new power. You need some new power. And often there's one side of the group that says, we want to see his power now. And they state it in such a way that other Christians really don't want to see it. We want to see his power. I don't know about those people. And I'm often put in the camp that is said to be either scared of the Holy Spirit or not a true believer in the Holy Spirit, you know? I know you talk about Jesus and God, but the Holy Spirit, you kind of leave them off because I'm not always talking about healing. And the reason for this is because I don't preach with power and insist on miracles and healings, and I don't pray with enthusiasm and emotion. But I told you, I'm not playing a game. I'm not putting on a show. I'm trying to serve God the best I can. There's a lot of hucksters out there. And if I'll be honest with you, I have a sister I'd love to see healed. And to say I'm scared of the Spirit's power is, that makes me sick. To accuse me of not, I would love to see my sister healed. She had to go to the hospital three days ago again. I prayed for my sister to be healed so much. Is it because I don't want the Spirit to work? What? What kind of a... I hate when they judge other Christians because other Christians are trying to be true to what we believe the Scriptures say. I ask God all the time for healing, to do amazing things, to rain money down on me. I pray for that all the time. But I'm responsible to God for my words. James 3 says, I will be judged more severely because I'm a teacher up here. Just this past week, my son Gio is on campus and he broke, tore his ACL. He's, you know, he's limping around with crutches and a kid said, hey, can I pray for your ACL? My son said, yeah, go ahead. So the guy got on his knees and was crying and saying, dear God, heal his knee. Like for about five minutes, Gio's kind of looking around. Kids are walking by. And then the guy gets up and says, how did, how's it feel now? Try it out. Well, still hurts. Kind of the same. He goes, well, you got to believe more. <laughs> who, who is going to be more accountable when they meet Christ? Someone who blames people for not having enough faith when they're not healed or someone who says, I live by faith and I let God be God. If God chooses to heal, he will heal. But if he doesn't, he doesn't. We must let God be God and pray for healing. I just want to have one more point on this whole idea of conviction. I want to show you something very interesting. And here it says, um, also empowering the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Conviction in our circles usually has this idea of dread. Like, how do you know you're convicted? Because I say, I hate myself. Woe is me. I am nothing. But then look what it says. Um, and you became imitators also, Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit. To me, conviction isn't dread. It's joy. It's joy. Like, I remember going to some services where they'd play just as I am 40 times 
and you know, and you have to feel terrible going up. And you gotta, you know, you gotta have that pastor, that same big pastor, be mad at you. You know, and if he's mad at you and you real feel bad enough, then you're convicted. But to me, real conviction is I want this Christ. I can remember when I was saved. I, I'm like, I want Jesus is all I got. I love this Christ. It's it's joy. It's like I is the gospel good news or is it dread and misery? And you're gonna be pounded. <laughs> or is it good news? You're Chris, you're saved. You, all your debts, all your debts, they're paid. What? You're free. Huh? That to me is what, when the Holy Spirit's really in your life, that's what happens. The second thing is the labor of love. The second sign is the labor of love. Love's a relational word. Love is setting my affection towards someone. And in this case, it's a love that's centered around people, but it's also one that's first centered around God. Here's how I can prove this. Verse 9. Verse 9. This is an amazing thing for, for uh, they themselves. So their faith is going out all over Macedonia, all over the New World, Nicaea, down to the Greek things. And, it, and verse 9 says, here's what was happening. For they themselves, all these people in Macedonia and Achaia, report concerning us the kind of reception we had, so they loved Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But even more than that, they turned from God, to God, from idols, to serve the living and true God. So they were converted. Not only did they believe, but they were converted. Conversion's a transfer of love from an idol, something that's carved in stone. Go ahead and hit that. Some carved in stone, looks like that kind of scary. The idols they had were these a lot of Greek idols like um, Aphrodite, Dionysus, um, Artemis. They had all kind of idols like in Thessalonica. If you, Mount Olympus was really close to there. The, the Roman and Greek pantheon of gods dwelled on this mountain. It's really close to Thessalonica. They also were um, Caesar worshipers. And they had all of these made up gods. That you can see statues there today. They sell them like crazy. And they turned from that to the living God. The God that we are told we are to love with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. So the love that they had for the idols, which really were idols that represented sex, lust, wine, and Caesar, they gave to Yahweh to serve him and him alone. You could ask this, what is an idol? Real quick, what's an idol? As one person said, humans by nature are idle factories. Is it just simply a block of wood? Is it an elephant with eight arms? I've been into some temples where they give honey to elephants with eight arms and trunks and Krishna. People actually do worship them because they get them what they want. But the best definition here is what I've heard of idolatry is this. This is a great definition. Idolatry is an attack on God's exclusive rights to our love, our trust, and our obedience. Is there anything that's taking God's exclusive right to your devotion, your trust, and your obedience? I think our modern-day idols are pretty simple. Greed, we have a, our 401k and credit cards. We trust those things. Things that we covet, they, 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 uh, we love our 
having a nice house and a new car and a cabin in the woods and hunting gear that can shoot a deer 7,000 yards away on pinpoint target with velocity that is, uh, you know, a high-capacity rifle. We love that stuff. Some people love power. That's all politics is. I want to I rule everybody else's life and have money to rule their life. Popularity. We worship celebrities. And recreation. So the question is, do you love God? Have you really received the gospel? Have you really been chosen? If you've been chosen, you love God. He comes first and your life will change. It will. People will see it as they did in the Thessalonians. Say that seven times with a list. People saw it in Macedonia and Achaia. I don't think people take this as serious as they should in the church. Do people see you differently than who you were? Or are you somebody who's still the same person, but I do believe in Jesus now, but I want all these things. Do you want your cake and you eat it too? Yeah, I may serve two masters. I love God, but I love money too, okay? Okay? These guys turned. One way you could tell they're really his. And then the third thing is that Thessalonians says, not only did they have a work of faith and a labor of love, but they were steadfast. And their steadfastness was based in hope. And it, we can read about this. Even in verse 6, they were, had suffered a lot of affliction. They're getting beat on. You have crowds that are being, you know, rabble, driving them out of the city. But look at verse 10. And these people were willing to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from wrath. In other words, you could say it like this. Life is hard, but I know my dad's coming for me. I know he's coming for me. Even when I don't see it. I will never forget, it was a late night, snowy night. My dad often would read a book. He had a chair he'd read on. He'd get some glasses from the local, you know, like Rite Aid. He'd put a strap around it, and sometimes he would put the glasses on his head and kind of fall asleep like that. It's about 10.30 at night. And he got a phone call. It was back in the day when they had things called landlines and dial phones. My mom goes, Don, it's Tam. Well, it was February. It was snowing like crazy. She's coming home from work. She had the station wagon, and she smashed it into a tree. She's, she, needs, she needs you to help. My dad said, all right. Chris, you're coming with me. Get on your hat. And he, we jumped in. I mean, it was kind of blizzardy, but he was all right because he's going to take care of my sister. And there's my sister freezing. He goes, Tam, come on in. We'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Keep it there. I'll take care of it tomorrow. He didn't mind. It's almost like he loved rescuing. So does our dad. He says here that he delivers us from wrath. Wrath is different than affliction. We go through affliction, but we don't go through wrath. That's what he's saying. The proverbial son running down the end of the hallway, if you've ever heard this story, or running down the end of the driveway. Son's running down the end of the driveway. At the same time, the neighbor's son's running down at the end of the driveway. The end of the driveway is a highway. Semis. The son's little and he's running, and his dad says, Johnny, stop. And he doesn't stop. So dad goes up and grabs Johnny and spanks him. 
You don't go near that highway. But that other kid keeps running. If I would stop, it sure seems, if I'm just stop motion, it sure seems like this guy is getting beat on and this guy is living free. Why is this guy getting beat on? He's being afflicted by the Father. Why? To save his life. This guy, this kid, is not, does not have the same care because he's going to run out to the semi. Sometimes we're afflicted by God to save us now. And it's hard to understand because it sure seems like the non-Christian's running free. I wrote this, I coined that myself. It's a great poem. God may use affliction to conform us, but the flaming tongues of the wrath will never warm us. Isn't that nice? That's nice. So my question is, are you part of the called out group? Are you part of his family? Are you part of the ecclesia? Are you saved? Do you have evidence? You could ask it like this. Do you, and I, one of my favorite questions, do you chew gum in the church or does the church chew gum? The church chews gum. Are you part of his church? You don't just come to church, you be the church. And in fact, tonight I'm going to ask you to come and be the church. About 10 years ago, they were interviewing this football player. He's kind of a coach, became a coach. He's also a Christian. They asked him, what contribution does professional football make to the physical fitness of Americans? He replied, very little. A professional football game is happening where 50,000 spectators, desperately needing exercise, sit in the stands watching 22 men on the field, desperately needing rest. Sadly, that is our modern-day American church. It wasn't the Thessalonians. 